Tonight I'd like to speak about bringing the practice back into the world. This time of transition, going from a period of intensive practice and silence into talking, back into silence, and then into leaving and back into your daily life, is its own practice. There are a lot of ups and downs that take place in the time of leaving a retreat and the days just afterwards. There's often feelings of excitement at first and then depression. <laughs> and then up and down and up and down. And after some time, we, we find the equilibrium again. But there's one teaching of the Buddha which really stands on the shore of worldly activities. It's like a, a lighthouse which illuminates the realm of our life in the world. It's a very simple teaching. He said, when we practice, wisdom grows, and when we don't practice, wisdom wanes. I think we really need to let that in Because often there's the idea that somehow we come and meditate and we develop some insight, some levels of understanding or wisdom, and then we have it. And then we just take it with us. And I think it's not quite like that. I see it more wisdom as being really alive within us. And it needs nourishing and nurturing and ripening. And when we practice, it continues to grow. And when we don't practice it gets submerged again underneath all the various habit patterns and energies of long-standing. One teacher expressed it very simply. He said, we have to do what we know. Because we know the teachings. It's not that complicated. We know what we need to do, and we need to do it. We need to practice it. We need to understand that our life is our practice. It's not simply a question of taking some time to come to retreat, as valuable as this is. Sometimes I see the unfolding of our lives It almost feels to me like we're artists, artists creating a work of art with our lives. There's that element of creativity, especially when we can bring awareness and mindfulness and wisdom to it. So how can we do this practically in the world, actually make our life our practice, so that it's not simply just a good idea, that we admire, what do we actually need to do? The Buddha laid it out very clearly, very straightforwardly and systematically. He talked of three fields of training. And these are the fields of training that we need to explore, we need to cultivate. The first of them, we've talked about it various times during the retreat, is the practice of what in Pali is called sila, 
or the morality of non-harming or virtue. And it's most frequently formulated as the five precepts for lay people, rules of training for living in the world. And when we look into the practice of sila, we begin to appreciate that there is possibility for tremendous refinement. We basically probably are leading relatively moral good lives. But rather than simply rest at that level, if we look into and investigate the meaning and the range of the precepts, we really can refine them to a point of great beauty. So just as a reminder for what these are in ways of practice, the first of the precepts, of course, is refraining from killing. Not to kill living beings. So on the most gross level, it means not killing other human beings. And even though most of us probably don't do that, (laughs) although we might like to, (laughs) still just think of what the world would be like if everybody followed that most basic of principles. And the world would be transformed. But we obviously can take it a few steps further to refrain from killing any living beings, from animals, either for livelihood or for sport, killing things we don't like. You know, our culture is so into getting rid of anything unpleasant. You know, so we have these insects in the house, take out the can of rage, gone. And that's accepted. I mean, that's people would think it a little unusual not to do that. But if we take in this precept of not killing, it really makes us stop and consider alternatives. Now, is it possible to take the insects outside rather than kill them? Can we develop as a basic motivation a certain quality of, you could call it reverence for life or the feeling of commonality? But there is a life energy in all of these beings. Sometimes questions or situations arise where it's not so easy to know what to do. Ethical dilemmas arise, you know, and they probe or they push the limits of our understanding. What do we do when carpenter ants are eating our house? Be happy, be happy, have the house. (laughs) You know, what do we do in a health program that's eradicating the mosquitoes that carry malaria? there 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 are issues. I think the commitment to the precept is that it makes us very conscious. And so even in those situations where we feel, given all the considerations, it seems like a necessary thing to do or a higher value. We need to be very conscious about it. 
And even in that situation, not to do it with ill will or aversion or hatred, but really with compassion. Taking the precept helps wake us up. It helps remind us to pay attention in different situations. Second of the precepts is not stealing. And again, probably most of us don't go around stealing things, but we can refine our understanding. Cultivating a certain quality of simplicity and contentment and not taking more than we need or using more than we need. And it really reveals a lot about our attachments you know, to things and possessions. One of my favorite stories reflecting aspects of our own minds was told. It's actually a, a haiku poem by Ryokan, that Zen a hermit poet monk, 18th century, I believe. And he, he lived just in this very poor hut up in the mountains. And he'd be out in the village playing with the children and then go back and to his little hut. One day he came back to his hut and his very few possessions had all been stolen. And so he wrote a haiku. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. (laughs) So I read that and, you know, it's really, it's a beautiful haiku. But then I thought how I would be. If I came back to my house, everything was stolen. Hmm, the moon at the window. (laughs) Unlikely. (laughs) So it points to something, you know, and I think with all of these precepts, it's all about becoming more conscious, being more awake to our own actions, our own attitudes. The third of the precepts, huge area of our lives in one way or another, and that is refraining from sexual misconduct. While on retreat, it's relatively easy since the guideline is to refrain from any sexual activity for this time. In the world, for lay people, it's really about taking care in our intimate relations so that we don't cause harm through that very powerful energy of sexual desire. It's a tremendously strong force. And often people feel most alive in their lives when the passion or desire is strong. We need to incorporate this as part of our spiritual practice as well. See, this is not outside of Dharma practice. How are we using this energy? Is it really coming from a place of love and care? Is it a truthful relationship? Is there dishonesty in the relationship? We need to look. We need to say. A 
favorite Burmese English translation was around this precept when Upandita was talking about it. He was going on and on in Burmese. And then the translator, translated into English, the translator said, but Sayadaw said, lust cracks the brain. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought it summed it up perfectly. (laughs) It does crack the brain. And we all know, either in our own experience or from other people's experience or what we read in the newspapers, how many unskillful actions have come because we don't pay attention carefully in this realm. So this is part of our practice also. It takes being mindful. It takes being aware. It takes the willingness to do that. The fourth of the precept is an arena that is perhaps the most or a tremendously useful one for bringing mindfulness into our lives. It's a huge, an area of huge activity, and that is precept is refraining from wrong speech. We spend a lot of time in our lives talking. This is a major part of the way we relate. Yet how often do we really consider speech as part of our spiritual path? Do we really give it a primacy that it deserves and that the Buddha suggested? He included, he singled out right speech as one of the elements of the Eightfold Path to Awakening, to Enlightenment, of all the various things that he could speak about, he highlighted right speech because it has such a powerful effect on our own minds and on the people around us. Speech conditions our relationships. It conditions how we feel about ourselves conditions our own minds, it conditions karmic results. So as a help to us, the Buddha also pointed out specific areas of speech that we should refrain from. And again, by pointing them out, it's like it raises the flag of mindfulness if we're committed to this precept, it raises the flag of mindfulness when we're about to engage in those kinds of speech. The first, again, in some ways the most obvious, it's refraining from lying. Just not saying that which isn't true. There are many gradations of lying. You know, there are the big whoppers. It's really big lies. There are little lies. There are slight exaggerations. It's interesting to look at the motivation behind behind untruths. What is it that's motivating us to say something that isn't true? Is it for some self-aggrandizement? Is it to protect ourselves? Is it to protect somebody else? 
just to see, to, to bring some power of investigation to our own motivations in that situation. Saying that which is untrue is a great disservice to ourselves and others because it engenders mistrust. You know, when we lie or say something that's untrue at whatever level, it really undermines people's trust in their own perceptions. Because they may feel something is not quite right. But if we're asserting something that's untrue, people begin to mistrust themselves. When we speak what's untrue, we create a lot of confusion in the world. And there's enough confusion. It doesn't need our addition. Now the Bodhisattva, who's the Buddha in all of his previous lifetimes, from the time that he was recognized as a bodhisattva, that is a being who would one day attain Buddhahood, it's said that in the course of those many, many lifetimes of evolution, he broke all of the different precepts one time or another except this one. That from the time he was established on the path, it said, that he never knowingly said that which was untrue. And I just find that possibility tremendously inspiring and also not so easy, which is itself surprising. And why should it be difficult? But we have so many habits and tendencies of mind in speech to plant the flag of truthfulness in our lives tremendously empowering and strengthening. And it creates a field of trust around us. People know that we are trustworthy. It's a beautiful way to live. Not saying that which is untrue. To avoid harsh, angry, aggressive speech. You know, words have impact. And when we're motivated by ill will, and it comes out in an aggressive, harsh way, it affects other people, it affects ourselves. The Buddha talked about harsh, angry, aggressive speech as being the cause for the loss of beauty. And we can see it right in the moment. How does one look, you know, when filled with anger and speaking angrily? Our whole countenance, our whole demeanor becomes ugly. We start living in an ugly world. So the Buddha is emphasizing we can say what's true and what's useful and what's needed, and we can do it in a gentle way, in a loving way. And this takes practice, precisely because our patterns are so deep. So we need to make it a practice. So not lying, not using harsh speech or angry speech. The third aspect 
of right speech is perhaps one of the hardest, and that is avoiding gossip you know, and backbiting. It is amazing the joy we get from gossiping. <laughs> and it's interesting just to see, you know, not even or not only, uh, you know, if it has some unskillful motive, but even when we're not even saying bad things about other people, but just this whole tendency to talk about others. At one point, very early on, when I was first getting interested in Buddhism, I was still in the Peace Corps in Thailand, and just everything was brand new to me, and I was so excited just to be exploring these different elements of the teaching, and I came across this, this particular one. So I made a resolve that I wasn't going to speak about any third person, and if they weren't there. I wasn't going to speak to someone about someone else. About 90% of my speech was eliminated. <laughs> and it was revelatory. I mean, I had had no idea that that much time was spent in talking about others. And it was so freeing. It made so much space in my mind. My mind got so quiet just from that simple act of restraint, renunciation. And even more helpful, I noticed that my mind... <coughs> that the pattern of judging in the mind started getting weaker because I wasn't giving voice to it over and over again. And as I stopped judging, giving voice to the judgments about others, I also stopped judging myself so harshly. So all in all, it was a great experiment. To whatever extent, whether you want to just do that as you know, experiment for some period of time or simply use this precept again as a wake-up call, a mindfulness bell when we are speaking about other people, just to take a look. What is the motive here? You know, what is it doing? Very often I find that kind of speech is a subtle way of reaffirming a sense of self, you know, of I, that somehow we're bolstering ourselves in that kind of speech. All of this should be done, you know, our refining and practicing the precepts, it all should be done from a place of interest, you know, and investigation, not, not from a place of kind of heavy-handedness or self-judgment, or it's not that at all. It's just we're artists creating our lives. What happens if I do it this way? What happens if I do this? And in that way, we make our lives beautiful. Not lying, not using harsh speech, or just backbiting gossip type of stuff. And the last of the categories of speech to avoid is again something that's very eye-opening, and that is the Buddha suggested avoiding useless talk. And again, when we pay attention, it's amazing how much of what we say is totally useless. <laughs> just kind of to chime in in some kind of social gathering or whatever, whatever is prompting it. The times when I've been able to catch the impulse 
to say something which is completely useless. And I actually have enough mindfulness to see the impulse and then, oh, I don't have to say that. You know, and then just quiet down again. It's amazing how much more peaceful our minds become. We don't have to be jumping in all the time with things that are not helpful in some way. It's not that everything we say has to have some profound import, but it should have some import. (laughs) Because if we go on just out of habit, you know, practicing, strengthening the useless talk, what happens is that our words begin to lose value. And there's no respect for what we may be saying. Really, the words become worthless. So it's not refraining from killing, refraining from stealing, establishing kind of contentment and simplicity in our lives, refraining from harmful sexual contact, refraining from wrong speech of all these kinds. And the fifth of the precepts is refraining from intoxicants that cloud the mind. I mean, it doesn't make sense to be on a path of clarity and understanding and wisdom and then to habitually do things which just confuse us and cloud us and dull our consciousness. Sometimes people ask, you know, well, what about a glass of wine or a glass of beer or something? And again, all of this is for us to experiment with in our lives. It's not, the point is not to have some moralistic attitude, you know, or become self-righteous in it. It's just to look and to see. I think we want to take particular care when activities become habituated. Now, if we begin to find that we need that glass of wine every day at five o'clock, then we might really take a look at that and see, can I let this one go? The commitment to sila, the commitment to moral integrity, ethical behavior, really draws strength from two sources. It draws strength from our basic and growing feeling of metta. Now, as we develop more in friendly feeling and loving feeling and goodwill, we don't want to do things that harm others. We're not driven by those desires or motivations anymore. Sort of just as a basic bottom line reference point for metta and the actions that follow from it was expressed, and this is this is a line of universal wisdom, but it was expressed in this particular case by Ramdas's guru Neem Karoli Baba, uh, you know, one of the great saints in India, and he didn't give a lot of verbal teachings, but you know, he had a few really pointed and universal ones, he said, do what you do, but don't throw anyone out of your heart. And I find that's just so, in its simplicity, 
it becomes that bottom line reference point for how we're relating to others. It's not that we don't have difficulties and it's not that we may not have to take strong action at times. We do what we do, but are we resting in that place, that fundamental place of goodwill? And seeing when we're not. It's not that we're going to be perfect in this, it's a practice. By having that as a reference point, it illuminates the times when we're not in that place. And so we become a little more wakeful. So the growing feeling of metta is a source of our commitment to sila. The second source of our commitment is a deepening understanding of the law of karma, that actions have results. The things we do through our body, through our speech, through our mind, they bear fruit. It's not that we do an action, we say a harsh word, or we speak an untruth, or whatever it is. It's not that these things just happen in a vacuum and have no consequences. Every action ripples out in very mysterious ways. And so we need to really look in our lives, in our ordinary daily lives, with all of our different actions and activities, we need to stay connected to the motivations behind our actions. Because it's the motivation which determines the fruit. Are we motivated by greed, by fear, by hatred, by desire, by lust? Are we motivated by goodwill, by friendliness, by compassion? And there'll be the mix for all of us. It's only through awareness or mindfulness that we can begin to choose. We can say, I can let go of this. I can cultivate that. Knowing that actions bring results, we want to be mindful enough in seeing where is this action leading and then ask ourselves the question, do I want to go there? And that really brings a great wakefulness in our lives. We want to take the time in the midst of very ordinary activities to notice what qualities of mind are being cultivated. When we eat, in our relationships, in our workplace, just in the course of our ordinary daily activities, can we be keeping an eye out for the qualities of mind that are being cultivated? Are we practicing anger? Are we practicing desire? Are we practicing fear? Or are we practicing more wholesome states? Kindness and compassion. There's one uh, principle in biology that was talked about and written about by a well-known contemporary biologist, Rupert Sheldrake. He called this principle morphic resonance. And the way he described it, he said, in nature, an event happening cannot have happened for a long, long time, thousands of years, millions of years. But once it happens, 
or as soon as it happens for the first time, it becomes easier and more common for it to happen again. And he gave all kinds of examples in nature about this. But when I read that, it just it, the morphic resonance resonated as an idea because it so reminded me of my own mind and activities. And once we do something once, it's easier to do it again. And of course, as we all know, this is the tremendous power of habit. Tremendously powerful force. And so we need to pay attention to what qualities of mind we are habituating. Dalai Lama summed all of this up really well and very simply. This whole practice of sila. He said, my true religion is kindness. And if we couldn't remember anything else, if five precepts are too much to remember, remember one. My true religion is kindness. The practice of sila is a tremendously purifying force in our lives. It is as much a spiritual practice and as much a part of the path to enlightenment as is meditation. It is its own meditation. The Buddha talked of sila as being the true beauty of a person. Now, in our culture, we're so concerned and so fixated on outer beauty, and kind of the billions and billions and billions of dollars spent on the cultivation of it, and often missing the real source of beauty in our lives. And we know this. We know this with people who have this very strong moral integrity, this commitment to non-harming in their lives. It is a beautiful quality. So we can develop that. We can practice, refine it in ourselves. It gives the gift of fearlessness and trust to the people around us. Because... When we are committed to non-harming, what we're saying with our lives and our actions, what we're saying to everyone around us is, you need not fear me. I'm not going to do anything that will be harmful. It's giving the gift of trust. Well, that is a magnificent gift to give to people. For ourselves, the practice of sila brings the peace of non-remorse. And you know probably from just this retreat and certainly long periods of practice, how we do have remorse for unskillful things we've done in the past. They do come up as we get quiet. Once we're committed to non-harming and we practice it, provides a tremendous strength for us. Sometimes this practice is very easy. It's just our natural inclination. We, our natural inclination to be kind and to be friendly and to be loving. And so right action flows naturally. 
But sometimes we're in situations where it's not so easy, that it's really challenging to us. We reach a certain edge or limit or power of a certain pattern of conditioning, and it takes an active act of will, of restraint. No, I'm not going to say those angry words. I'm not going to kill those insects in the house, or whatever. It's at the times when we really need to make an active choice, that's when the practice of sila can be the most transforming for us. We are really transforming the quality of our consciousness. In the choice of our actions in the world, we often use a false measure. Because very often in our lives, we choose based on whether it brings us happiness or not, whether a particular experience brings us happiness. The Buddha said, that's not the best measure. Because sometimes we can do things that are very pleasant in the moment and have the happiness of that pleasure, but actually lead to very harmful results. And if you just look at any area of our various addictions, you know, it, may, it may give a hit of pleasure in the moment, but actually is leading us to not such a great place. And likewise, there can be things which are unpleasant in the moment, but don't give us pleasure or happiness in the moment, but actually lead to wonderful results, like coming on retreat. (laughs) You know, you probably have not been in bliss for the last week, and struggle with a lot of discomfort, a lot of pain, a lot of mental turmoil, the whole trip. So it's not that it's always so pleasant or it brings us so much happiness in the moment, The truer measure or reference point as a choice for our actions is not the happiness or unhappiness in the moment. It's the qualities of mind being cultivated. That's what we should look for. That's what we should investigate. With this action, what quality are we developing? Because that's what turns into our character. Are we just practicing greed? Are we practicing fear? Are we practicing ill will? Whether it's pleasurable or not. Or are we practicing kindness or love or compassion? That's the measure. Padmasambhava was a great Indian adept who brought Buddhism to Tibet. And so one of the great Buddhist sages, very enlightened being, he had one teaching which just strikes at the importance of the practice of sila. He said, though my vision, though my understanding 
is as vast as the sky. My attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So even though his vision was as vast, his vision of emptiness, of insubstantiality, the nature of mind was as vast as the sky, his attention to his actions was fine as a grain of barley flour. So that's what we need to cultivate and practice. Okay, this is the first field of training. As a second field of training, which actually doesn't belong in this list, but I'm going to just slip it in because I think it's going to be appropriate for this evening. Uh, And that is patience. Because I don't think I'm going to actually finish in an hour. (laughs) 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 I get so inspired talking about the beauty of sila, you know, and and the power of that in our lives. So just kind of take a deep breath. (laughs) Okay. Second field of training. <laughs> the Buddha called this field of training samadhi. And by sam- samadhi usually means concentration, but in this context, as a whole area of training, it's the qualities of energy and effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So a lot of the factors that we've been developing here. This is another arena that we have to develop in our lives outside as well. It's not limited to retreat. So how to do this? One essential mantra to carry home with you. Sit every day. It's enormously helpful. And part of what's helpful is the commitment to it, of strengthening that quality of resolution and resolve. Yes, I'm going to do this. This is a priority. I'm going to arrange my life around the sitting. And there'll be a lot of ups and downs, and sometimes they'll be good and clear and still, and sometimes full of confusion and judgment and restless mind. It doesn't matter. Just sit every day. And it's more important to sit regularly than how long you sit. It's a counterbalance to the enormous busyness of our lives. We're saying, for this period of time, I'm going to be still. I'm going to sit and just watch and notice. Without a regular sitting practice, it is very, very difficult to sustain a keen mindfulness throughout our worldly, everyday activities. So I can't emphasize enough how important it is. I'd like to just offer two, you think of them as extremes, the range of extremes in committing to a daily sitting practice. And everybody will fall within this range. So nobody is excluded from this commitment. At the high end, I was at a conference uh, some months ago, and there was a psychiatrist there, long-time practitioner, and in the course of his talk, 
Very busy. I mean, he's busy practice, family, kids, the whole trip. In the course of his talk, he said that over the last 20 years, without missing a day, he has sat two hours, once in the morning and once in the evening. That was very impressive and really inspiring. Here's somebody very busy, very active, engaged in the world, but this was so important to him. He just made this commitment. So an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, and he arranged his day around that. And the fruit of it was so obvious. So I just offer that as a possibility. You know, and it's tremendously strengthening. At the other extreme, this was, I heard from a yogi who lived in New York who said they'd lived a totally crazy, hectic, frenetic life. As much as they wanted to sit, you know, they found it really difficult to do. But they came up with a surefire commitment. So I'm not suggesting you take this end of things, but in case everything else fails, this person said they made the commitment that at least once before they got into bed to go to sleep, they would at least get into sitting posture. (laughs) Oh, is there anybody who couldn't do that? (laughs) And that's pretty minimal commitment. (laughs) Just to get into the posture. And it proved very useful for them because for some strange reason, it's not that the sitting is so difficult to do. It's the getting into the posture. It's the disengaging from the busyness of our lives to just sit down. So I offer that to you as a fail-safe resolve. Sitting every day doing some very simple things in the course of the day to keep strengthening these factors of effort, mindfulness, concentration. Many times during the day we can come back to the breath. You know, the breath is there just in quiet moments to get into the habit of coming back to it. To really use the walking. Every time you walk can be a time of walking meditation. It doesn't mean... You know, walking down the streets of Boston, lift, move, place. (laughs) Just walking at any natural speed, but using the movement as a vehicle for mindfulness instead of just letting the mind be lost. Lost in the future, or thoughts, or plans, or whatever. So we begin to really practice mindfulness of the body. In line with Upandita's training of Sharon, you know, we each time should come in for an interview and he'd ask her about some other activity. Pick an activity a week. Just one little thing each week. This week I am going to really pay attention every time I open a door. This week I'm going to really pay attention when I brush my teeth, when I put my shoes on, whatever. You know, after a few months of this, There'll be a lot of activities that we've habituated ourselves to be attentive to.
This all has to do with mindfulness of the body and using mindfulness of the body. The Buddha talked of this. He said mindfulness of the body leads to Nibbana, leads to liberation, leads to freedom. It's not an insignificant practice. And it's something we can do. We have our bodies with us all the time. Why not pay attention? It's a habit. It's a practice. And we can practice it. But it's not only mindfulness of the body. We can pay attention in our worldly life. We can stay mindful of our thoughts. Particularly of the repetitive tapes. If there are patterns which you've learned to recognize on retreat, you know, patterns of judging or planning or worrying or whatever they are, fantasizing. Just to begin to become aware of them in our life outside so we're not continuously lost in them, carried away. To the degree that we can deepen our insight into the empty nature of thought, it is tremendously freeing. Just to reiterate something I said during the retreat, paraphrased a little differently, it was a line of my first Dharma teacher, Manindra, when he was trying to get us to see the difference between the story that we tell ourselves and the understanding that these are just thoughts. His line was, the thought of your mother is not your mother. The thought of your mother is a thought. Your mother's in Florida. (laughs) Or wherever. (laughs) And it's amazing. It's just amazing how we have these thoughts and get lost in them as if the content of the thought is really happening. And it's not. It's just a thought passing through. The thought has no power other than the power we give to them but we have been long in the habit of imbuing these thoughts with tremendous power and they run our lives. And so we want to practice in whatever way and especially with the predominant patterns, just dropping back, just a thought. That's all that's going on. We also want to work with emotions, strong emotions that come up in our lives, and they do. These are part of our practice as well, just as we practiced with them here. How do we relate when there's strong anger or fear or desire, whatever it is? Especially with the afflictive emotions, the ones that cause us suffering, we want to understand how we're getting hooked and the possibility of freedom. And there's a very simple move that we can make to open the door to freedom in these emotional states. I'll just very quickly. There's a situation. The situation causes an emotion to arise. Let's say sadness or anger or whatever it is. So there's a situation. We get angry. In the midst of the anger, we think more about the situation. As we think about the situation, it makes us more angry. And we're just looping around. You know, from the thought of the situation to how we're feeling, back to the situation, back to how we're feeling. We're getting lost 
further and further tied up. The way out of that loop is a very simple move. It's a meditative move. Instead of feeling the anger or the sadness or the grief or whatever, and then going back to think about the situation, instead of going that way, be in the emotion and go this way to the question, how am I relating to this emotion? How am I holding it? Am I relating with judgment? Am I identified with it? Am I condemning it? Whatever. Because when we ask that question, how am I relating to this feeling, this emotion? At that moment, the situation has become irrelevant. The situation has no bearing at all on how we are being with this feeling. And that's what cuts the bonds, it cuts the threads. And we really empower ourselves. So instead of blaming the situation for how we feel, we actually can look at how we're relating to the feeling. And that's where the freedom is. Awareness is not something that's far off. No, it's not that you have to be on retreat to be aware. And it's not something that you need to practice 25 years to touch. Awareness is already here. We simply need to remember to come back to it again and again. As one teacher expressed it, he said, short moments many times. So rather than go out into the world in your lives thinking, I have to somehow sustain awareness through the day, just as you saw here within one sitting, it's way too much. We'll never do it, and then we get discouraged. But if you see, yeah, just short moments many, many times, we touch that place of awareness, and it begins to suffuse our lives. How are you doing? Do you have a little more? <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> I'll hear about this afterwards. <laughs> okay, third field of training. The first is sila. The second is samadhi. All of these ways of practicing right effort, mindfulness, concentration. The third field of training is the development of wisdom. Clear seeing comes from an investigation of the Dharma. It's that quality of investigation. When we're really looking at the nature of our experience, the nature of our minds, It's this investigation which illuminates the Dharma for us. There's one phrase from, I don't know, the Zen or Japanese poetry, where it says, the light of a single candle dispels the darkness of 10,000 years. It's such a beautiful image because it just points to the power of one moment of awareness, no matter how long we've been confused or lost or caught up, the light of a single candle dispels the darkness of 10,000 years. And so we want to keep cultivating or lighting that candle of wisdom. So how do we grow wisdom? How do we nurture it and nourish it? 
some very basic ways. Wisdom grows through an awareness and attentiveness to, mindfulness of, reflection on the experience of impermanence. Just that we practice noticing again and again the changing nature. And it's not only or limited to the kind of microscopic change that we can notice on retreat. It's change on any level. Because in every moment that we are really seeing the changing nature, it deconditions the habit of grasping and clinging, which is the driving force of samsara. Somebody was asking this morning about how does the monkey learn to open its hand and slip out of the trap? How do we learn to let go? We let go, we learn to let go to refining our perception that everything is changing. And it can be done in the most simple ways. You know that just some time ago I was on retreat and I was just taking a walk to the pond. You know, I've done thousands and thousands of times. But just just that day just struck me very forcibly. You know, I got to the pond and I realized my experience of when I started that walk was completely gone. Not only the experience when I started the walk, the experience of ten steps before, five steps before, one step before was completely gone. Our experience is like water over a waterfall. It's continually changing and disappearing. Where is, you know, when you think of the best moment of this retreat or of your life, of the worst moment, you know, when you were most frustrated and most in dukkha, where is it now, except as a thought? The most, or one of the most striking aspects of our delusion, and it's, it is striking how pervasive it is, is that when we look back at our experience, we all know that our experience keeps changing and has disappeared. So this is not a mystery. This is not an esoteric piece of wisdom. We know this. And yet when we look ahead, we keep getting seduced by the kind of dazzle of possibilities, as if somehow the next hit of experience is going to really fulfill us, even though we know when we look back that it all has this dream-like quality to it. So why do we keep getting so hooked? You know, an attachment, a desire, of wanting the next hit. I mean, have you had any thoughts lately about the first piece of junk food you're going to eat when you leave? <laughs> you know, or reconnecting with your partner, or sleeping in your own bed, or I don't know, whatever your particular fantasy or desire is. <laughs> You know, we keep looking ahead, thinking somehow these experiences that we're looking forward to is somehow going to fulfill us some ultimate way, even when we know that they're not. 
And so the reflection on impermanence, the remembering it, the bringing it to life, it frees us from the grasping quality. It doesn't mean that we don't do things or even look forward to them, but can we do it without this clinging quality? It's really important here to understand the difference between detachment and non-attachment. Because the insight into impermanence, sometimes people get a little upset and they think, well, it just makes you very detached and passive and uninvolved. That's not it at all. It's not detachment in that sense. It's not withdrawal. It's non-attachment. So we can be fully there in each moment, but without adding that energy of clinging. Now, the Buddha died at the age of 80. He was sick, quite sick for some time. And he knew he was dying, so he lay down between two trees in northern India. And it's said, according to the legend, that the trees were flowering out of season because of the Buddha's great virtue. And a lot of people came around and pay their last respects, and they said, you know, all these invisible beings and devas, and so countless beings were there as he was dying. And he gave his last teaching, his last words. Now just imagine, here's somebody who spent lifetimes, countless lifetimes, to become Buddha, spent his whole life, you know, as, as a Buddha teaching liberation. These are the last words that he said, and he's really speaking to us. He said, with the light of perfect wisdom, illuminate the darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Diligence. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. All conditioned things come into being and pass away. So what are we doing with our lives? What are our aspirations? Are we simply going after something more that is going to pass away and is impermanent? Is that our highest value? The Buddha was pointing us to look, to see, not to believe, to see for ourselves, to investigate the truth of this impermanence and to find that place of liberation. The wisdom grows from seeing impermanence. Wisdom grows from opening to suffering, from seeing the suffering. Suffering can be a great wake-up call for us. Or it can lead to more confusion. But in times of suffering, can we really bring our attention to investigate what is going on here? How am I getting caught? How am I getting hooked? Can we take times of suffering as feedback and as a prompt to our investigation? So that we see what qualities of mind are happening at that time. 
how are we getting lost in them? Are we lost in the wanting mind? Just one little practice that could save you an enormous amount of suffering. Ready? (laughs) If you can do this, you're set. My experience has been that the vast majority of suffering in my life can be traced back to some kind of wanting. It's wanting something. Either wanting something that's not there or wanting to get rid of something that is there. But when I look, when when I'm in a state of suffering and I just kind of trace it back, 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 I often find that it's just coming from this wanting energy. Now, if we can trace it back to that point and really see open to the wanting that's there and then take the next step of seeing that the identification with that wanting is a choice. We don't have to be identified with it. It's just another arising condition. If we can see it, it's the wanting that wants. There's no one behind it if we do not identify with it. Right in that moment, we come back to that place of freedom. Trace it back to the wanting. See that the identification with the wanting is a choice that we're making in that moment. It's a tremendous practice, a lot of subtlety to get it right back to that point. And it's, it's tremendously liberating. Okay, so wisdom comes from the seeing of impermanence. It comes from the experience right in the middle of the dukkha of suffering. We can investigate it. And the last place for the arising of wisdom in this context is the understanding of selflessness. We create a sense of self every time we identify with some arising experience. We identify with a sensation, a thought, an emotion. We claim them as being I, as being mine. We create a prison of self and contract ourselves or collapse into that prison. The identification with experience is extra. It's possible to simply rest back in the flow of things being known moment after moment, free of grasping, free of wanting, free of identification, open to the flow of experience. Notice how often we create stories. We live in the world of our stories and projections. Kala Rinpoche expressed this really well. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. When we stop identifying with any one part of what's happening, 
we settle back into the experience of it all. So as you're going through the day, and this can be part of your practice in the world, just notice those moments of contraction of self. You know, you're going along, going along, everything's flowing. Where are those moments of tightening, of selfing? When we're identified with a desire, with a reaction, with a judgment, with a fear. Pay attention to those times when the self is born. And in those moments, we can practice relaxing the heart. Just letting go of the identification, settling back into that place of selflessness. There was a great Japanese Zen master, Bankai, who gave one very short, pithy instruction, which, again, is something that can be practiced and would add tremendous light, flexibility, openness in one's life. Okay, again, get ready. (laughs) It's a very short teaching. He said, don't side with yourself. So it would be really interesting to go through a day and notice all the times in our various relationships, our actions, our communications, all those times when we are siding with ourselves, when we're taking a stance. And just to practice for that moment, don't side with yourself. See what that's like. From the growth of wisdom, through the attention, attentiveness to impermanence, to the investigation of suffering, to the realization of selflessness, from the growth of wisdom grows the very rare flower of bodhicitta, which is that aspiration or motivation that our practice and our lives be for the benefit of all beings. So this is our practice in the world. It's strengthening and refining our understanding and commitment to sila, to non-harming. It's developing the factors of energy and effort and mindfulness and concentration through discipline. And it's nourishing this growth of wisdom within ourselves. I'd like to close with a reading from Thoreau. And this really addresses a question that has come up during this week of people sometimes feeling that the Dharma is so vast. the, The idea of liberation seems so far away. How it's possible to really work just from where we are with the highest aspirations. If you advance confidently in the direction of your dreams and endeavor to live the life you have imagined, you will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. You will pass an invisible boundary Universal laws will begin to establish themselves around and within you. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be, 
now put the foundation under them. So let's sit for about 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your patience.